Inverness Youth Hostel is not the uh, most obvious place to come to meet someone who ventures through the Canadian wilderness, but this is my meeting place for Corey Jones, who's done a thousand mile canoe adventure through Canada. And uh, I'm going to find out all about it when he turns up. Uh, the reason we're doing this indoors and not at some great canoeing location, and I don't have a paddle in my hand, is because we're going to do a second podcast, which you'll hear later, uh, about first aid, because one of the businesses that Corey runs does first aid training. So I'm doing that course, and it'll all come together. So we're going to be talking about two things tonight, but in this podcast will be all about that Canadian adventure. Corey, a proper hello. Pleased to meet you. We can shake hands again now. Yeah. That's really oh, good. Well, it's great going to things again, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so much better than that. It's like every, every time you go to a meeting or I run a training course, it's like, wow, this is the, they're letting us do this now. <laughs> it's the strangest world we live in. Great stuff. So when we went to Canada, we were essentially in the Peel catchment in Yukon Territory. And it gets a little bit confusing because there's the Yukon River and there's the Yukon Territory, the Yukon State. So the Yukon River is obviously huge and vast, but the Yukon Territory um, is the size of Spain and has the population of 45,000 people. Right, so that's wilderness compared to Scotland. We've got six... 0.5 million last time I looked here. But the Yukon, is that the bit to the right of Alaska? Yep, so we were essentially going to end up on the Alaskan border. And so, yeah, the, the Yukon River runs into Alaska um, and the Yukon State is, is is bordering it. It's just to the kind of east east of there. Um, so I think when I, when I talked about the Yukon population being 45,000 people, 32,000 of those live in the capital city. So once you get out of the capital city, you are in rural, remote. But then once you go away from any settlement, you really are in the middle of nowhere. And the Peel catchment, which is the real kind of place we wanted to get to, literally is one of the last wildernesses on the planet. So, so what, what was the goal before? I want you to describe what the area is like, but, but what was the objective that you'd set yourselves? And, and where did it, that idea come from? I think as a as a mountaineer and it's that schoolboy passion to visit the wilderness and explore the world, um, you know, there are very few places on the planet's surface now that we'd, we'd really call wilderness that haven't really been affected by, by people. So I guess like a lot of people going to the Canadian Arctic North is something that's on your tick list as a, an outdoor adventurer. So that, that's always been in my head. And then um, in 2017, uh, I walked the Pacific Crest Trail with my partner. And so a bit like yourself and Liz, me and Mandy did a significant chunk of the Pacific Crest Trail. We didn't do all of it because of forest fires and snow on the mountains and various other things. Um, but at the end of that trip, we went up to Canada and we did some open boating on the coast. We did the Powell River Trail, which is a great sort of seven, eight day open boat trip. But when we came back, we did a little film and that was shown at the Scottish Adventure Film Show. And one of the other films showing at that event was these crazy Canadian guys who'd done this amazing wilderness journey and paddled a thousand miles through one of the last wildernesses on the planet, which is the Peel Catchment. And at that point, the Peel Catchment was under threat of mineral extraction. 
So they'd done their paddle to say, look at this wonderful wilderness place, let's try and protect it. These are all the issues. They were trying to publicise the issues. So I saw that film and with all these memories of like, I'd love to go to the Canadian wilderness. It was like, well, that's that's the place we want to go. That's where I'd like to go. I'd like to visit it, explore it. Um, I'm passionate about wildlife. So, you know, the, the grizzly bears and the wolves and the moose and all of these things were kind of all, all of what to do. So it was, it was to visit that wilderness, to see it um, and, and explore it and, and just taste it. That's really what we wanted to do. But the, the, the paddle was the challenge, you know, the thousand miles in an open boat is a, is a massive challenge in those environments. So that was part of it as well, just the, the, the exploration, the adventure. So what I'm trying to get clear in my mind, it's clearly been done before, but are we talking about an area that has been mapped? Is it clear what's there? Because with satellites and stuff nowadays, yeah, but but and, and it's wilderness in the sense that you're on your own. So the Peel River catchment is made up of six main rivers, and they all run. Um, one of the rivers, the Wind River, um, about grade two, is run as a commercial trip. So you can float plane in and float plane out. The other rivers... But that's the only way, float plane. Absolutely. Um, but the other no rivers... Roads. Yeah, the, 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 the Snake, the Plume, um, the Heart, which is with the... With the the sort of tributary that runs into the peel that we did um, are done very rarely and certainly the Hart River that we did um, just in the summer hadn't been paddled since pre-COVID right. so we were the first team on that watercourse since COVID Right, so it may not be exploration but it certainly feels like it Absolutely um, and the other, the other part of it was challenge so the, the trip really was in two parts so the, the peel catchment was one part of it and then we were going to go from the Peel catchment over to the Yukon River catchment, which involves going uphill. So there's a, a, a river called the Rat River, named after muskrats. Um, and the Rat River is 140 kilometres uphill to the Continental Divide and then drops down to the west coast of America. And that drops into the Yukon catchment. So as well as the, the exploration of the Peel catchment, we wanted to do this amazing um, adventure, which the First Nations people will have done years ago as part of their winter um, kind of looking around for, for game to hunt, essentially. They'd travel around through the mountains. And this is one of their old historic routes. But it was 140 kilometers upstream as part of this thousand mile kind of adventure. Well, well, we'll try and take it step by step because there's a few other things I want to ask you about, like Aberdeen Canyon and the swamps and all that, all that kind of thing. But who's on this trip with you? There were, there were six, but I think you described yourselves as strangers. Absolutely. So when I started looking into doing this trip, um, I've done quite a lot of adventures before um, with small groups, so pairs, threes and fours. But when I started looking at the logistics of it and the, the remoteness of it, in order to run the trip safely, I thought we'd need three or four canoes because obviously if someone has an accident or the group splits, you are literally in the middle of nowhere. And so as a, as a like little support crew, you'd need a, a minimum number of six or maybe eight people, which is three or four canoes. Um, and I don't know that many canoeists. I'm a sea kayaker, so, um, so... So how do you pair up? Sorry, I'm just get, just clarify those absolutely. numbers a bit. So um, what I did, because I didn't know enough, but I, so, you know, go to Facebook to all the sort of canoeing sites and say, this is the adventure I'd like to go on. Would you like to come along? There's um, a website called Explorers Connect. And so got in touch with the people at Explorers Connect. They put a little um, piece out for me. And essentially, this was, this was sort of the start of 
well, we didn't know it was going to be COVID. It was just before COVID um, and got all these people almost applying to come on the expedition and um, I whittled them down to a small group. And then we did essentially two years of training before we went. So we were all strange at the start. None of the six people who went had met before, although the, the idea was we'd have four or five training trips before we went. So we knew that everyone would have the right kind of paddling skills. They'd be able to look after themselves in the wilderness. Um, they were nice people <laughs> to go yeah. traveling with. So that was part of the kind of two years of I mean, training trips. I that's a trips. big thing, making sure you get Ab- Absolutely. And as we'll discuss, I guess, as we go along, th- there were issues on the trip. Um, and so, you know, there are things that are always in your control. But, but explain to me again how, how you end up with six... And how many canoes? So we had three canoes right. and six people, so t- pairs, so it was tandems. Right. So so is that a backup in case you had lost a canoe, you could put three in one or something? I mean, just in case you put a big hole in I don't know how it works on these things. Yeah, I mean, we could have put a big hole in a canoe, but we, we had enough kit to repair the canoes for the sort of damage that potentially was going to, to happen. Um, but it was, yeah, I mean, if someone had potentially broken an arm, um, we wouldn't necessarily get rescued for a broken arm, so we would have had to tow a canoe or, like you say, put someone in another canoe. So we just needed a certain number of people to, to, to work out the logistics of looking after each other in that environment. What does the training involve for something like that? Because uh, w- when you emailed me, you said, we've done it, and I'm 53. So, so y- you made a thing about your age, so I don't feel bad about bringing that up. Absolutely, and this, this is maybe something that happened later on in the trip, but... Um, I also appreciate that I'm not maybe as fit and as strong. I mean, I've mm. got quite a lot of stamina, but actually as we get a little bit older, maybe we're not quite as strong as we used to be. And um, There's a lot of muscle fibres, sarcopenia, just yeah, kicks in. Yeah, so, so I thought it would be nice to have some younger people along. And so one of the reasons I went out to this group, Explorers Connect, was to try and engage with some younger, fit, strong people. Mm. So there's some bits of this trip that are really physical and to have some sort of um, young physical guns, young, young support yeah. coming with us. Um, and so... I interviewed lots of people on the on the Zoom, as it turned out to be, and then invited people up once the restrictions started lifting. And we did um, essentially a Great Glen trip with the group, and we did a, a Spay trip with the group, and then um, we did a kind of weekend, which was a combined um, Finned Horn. For those people who know these areas, know these are sort of some classic Scottish Absolutely, absolutely classic, well, classic yeah. three, three trips there. And, and as we were doing them, obviously these people had great adventures. They're all adventures in themselves. Um, these people weren't necessarily experienced canoeists. I wasn't really looking for people with the most experience. It's not, the conditions we were in weren't really super technical, but I needed people who we could get along with, who could cope with sort of being away from home for six, seven, eight weeks. Mm-hmm. And people, people who had the right attitude. You know, attitude is as much as good as anything on these big trips. Um, and so that's what we were looking for. And actually, we started out with eight, and we ended up going with six. So we did a little bit of whittling as we went mm. through. This is reminding me very much of the days when I used to do sea kayak podcasts. And if any, the, the website's gone now, but they're all still up there on uh, on iTunes and and in all the podcast readers. So if anybody's listening to this, thinking that I'd like to hear more about open water adventures, then. Uh, then, then yeah, Sea Kayak Podcast. Just stick that into your podcast reader and something might just pop out. Um, how did you get out there? I mean, because float planes, three big canoes, and I'm guessing a heck of a lot of barrels full of food. Yep. So the logistics were really interesting. And, and in fact, just before we went, one of our team of six um, went down with long COVID. 
and so they couldn't come. So we were down to five, and five doesn't work. So literally in the last 10 days organising the trip, we had to find a sixth person, um, which was quite a challenge, but we found our sixth person. Um, we flew as individuals, but we all met up in Whitehorse, which is the capital of Yukon Territory. So most people flew to Vancouver and then up to Whitehorse. And in Whitehorse, I'd been in touch with an outfitter there, and we'd bought three canoes. Um, in another year, we'd maybe bought second-hand canoes, but because of COVID and all the logistics around, it was very difficult. Um, and once we were in Whitehorse, we met up, we had to fit the canoes. So, you know, in Canada, they have spray decks on their canoes. Uh, so we'd, in Scotland, have airbags to keep the water out. But because the volume of the rivers in Canada is so big, you just have a massive spray deck over the whole thing. So you can go through big standing waves and bounce the water off the, the top of the canoe. Um, so we had to fit the canoes. We had to go to the shops and purchase all the food um, and find somewhere we could buy our bear spray all, all these things and then we got uh, essentially hired some transport and took four hours drive to go to the really small settlement of Mayo and Mayo is where the float plane base is um, on the Stewart River and from there they take your canoes they strap them to the floats on the float plane and you jump into the float plane and you head off not in, the canoe yeah <laughs> and you head off into the wilderness and they drop you off in the middle of nowhere um so that that's the kind of start of the trip now because of the the way the float planes work and kind of if we did it again we would do it slightly differently a plane can only carry so much weight and so you, once you've strapped the canoes to the the struts of the floats plus you've put your six physical bodies in there there's only a certain weight limit you've got for bags equipment and food so kind of menu planning then became really important because you only could take so much kit with you um and so that was that was part of the logistics and planning that was really quite complicated and and actually we messed up and we ended up having to hire a second float plane because um, we had too many boats and too much weight mm. um which was kind of if we did it again we'd do it differently but that's part of you couldn't do a learning. food drop somewhere well because <clears throat> it was such a long trip um there's actually a small settlement towards the base of the end of the peel river which is way up north in the arctic called fort mcpherson so we actually we needed four weeks food essentially to get to four weeks for fort mcpherson where we could have a resupply and we've been in touch with the supermarket there mm. to say, we're coming, will you have anything in stock when we get there? So modern technology is great. And they answered by Facebook and said, we don't know what we'll have when you arrive. It's really hard to order things in. Just see when you get here, oh. which was, was, you know, the way the way it is, it's, it's exploration. Um, and and I, I kind of come from the, the Shipton and Tillman school of kind of adventure travel, which is, we need to have a plan, but but actually it's a journey. And things will happen on the journey, which will mean that you just have to cope and, and get on with it. And you can overplan things sometimes. Um, so it's good to to know what the outcome is, where you're headed, but how you get to the end might might change when you're there. I always like a plan because you've got something to throw away. And and the adventure starts when when things go wrong, and, uh, which which they inevitably do. So what do the people think when they see these six? I'm assuming you're all British, coming in here but who kind of know each other but one's new to you all and you've got these canoes because they've got such a great heritage of canoeing in Canada. And I'm just wondering what they think about you guys coming in and what the lime is doing here. Yeah. It, it's, most people were like, you're doing what? Because this 
trip is not done. It's not a commercial trip. You know, we're joining six rivers together mm. to make this uh, this happen. You know, we're starting on the Hart River into the Peel River, up, up the Rat River, down the Peel, the, the Bell, into the Porcupine, into the Yukon. You know, people will do individual legs of this trip, but nobody joins it all together and does it all at once. It's just too big and too extreme. Did anybody used to do this in the fur trading days, do you know? Did you look into that side? Absolutely. So the Hudson Bay Company and the few little companies that formed before that um, certainly did the area around the, the Peel River and the Yukon River. And the Hudson Bay Company really struggled to fit together that bit of the continental divide that we went mm. over on the Rat River. And, and actually, um, when you read the histories, the First Nations people who were the guide for the Hudson Bay Company fur traders, um, they kept the Rat River secret. So the the, the First Nations people um, respected the Rat River as a shortcut over the Continental Divide, and they never told, none of their sort of First Nations guides told the um, Hudson Bay Company about that route and they took them a different route, a longer route every time they did that portage over the Continental Divide with all the furs um, but yeah, that, that kind of colonial history is, is is huge in that part of the world so I mean, you just think of the names of, like Fort McPherson, you know, the Scottish heritage there is incredible, we were talking to First Nations people who were who were Campbells and McDonald's and they were saying, you know, what's the what's the heritage of the Campbell clan and the McDonald clan and when you explain it to them, they're all like, so this man standing next to you is not my friend <laughs> um, you know, that Scottish heritage out there is is, is vast it's wonderful and so that links so so much with, with what we have here in Scotland, you know, yeah, it was great. The only thing about wilderness trips is you don't get a huge interaction with people, but but presumably when you did, that would make an important part of your, your journey. Absolutely, and, and the, the two settlements that we went through, the two First Nations settlements, Fort McPherson and Old Crow, you know, Fort McPherson has a population of 800, Old Crow 300, and these are all sort of native Gwich'in um, First Nations people and when we were there because COVID had been going on we were the, the, the first canoeists that had passed through these settlements since COVID we were a real novelty um, so all the community projects we got invited to see we were invited to you know go and eat in people's houses we, we talked to the village elders in Old Crow we had to wait for an airplane for three days so we spent a lot of time chatting to the locals we got invited to community meetings it was wonderful the hospita- hospitality was, was really good and so we talked a lot about you know, how the elders used to go out and, and hunt the caribou and how they'd fish in the rivers and how those skills and the languages has disappeared now. Just in that two generations down from the elders, the young people today don't hunt and they don't fish. And if they do go hunting, they shoot with rifles and they'll maybe shoot four or five caribou at once just for the fun and then walk away but not use the meat and the fur. So so the culture has changed really quickly um, and the, the, we had lots of interesting chats with the elders about that. Let's talk about some of the highlights of the paddling itself. So I mentioned Aberdeen Canyon because that's something that you mentioned to me in, a, in an email. What does it look like, feel like, smell like, sound like, taste like when you get into something really spectacular out there? So we were dropped off at a place called Elliot Lake, which is which is really a like... A mountain tarn and there's a, a creek 
that runs into the Hart River, which runs into the Peel River, and that that section took ten days. <laughs> so you're, you're starting literally from kind of 700, 800 meters in altitude and dropping down to 200 meters in altitude. Um, over that period, you're, the, the the rivers have cut through the deep mountains. The, the there's rows of gendarmes that go all the way alongside of the river and the mountains. Um, and you can see the mountains. It's not just all absolutely. a blanket of trees. Yeah. Um, so you can see the mountains spreading out in the distance in the in the in the, in the headwaters. The the trees are amazing. It's boreal forest. Um, because when we were there, it was still really early in the season to do the whole trip in one season. We started really early, which meant there was still lots of meltwater. Um, this is July you started, yeah? So we, we started July the 1st. We got dropped off on July the 1st. Um, so there's still sort of snow melt coming into the rivers. So although there weren't big rivers, they were full. They were at spate. And um, they're very dramatic because obviously there's a lot of erosion. There's lots of trees falling in the river. We were dealing with lots of log jams. No one had been down these rivers for a few seasons, so we were cutting trees to get down the smaller parts of it. Um, so it's... it's so, so you didn't know what was around the next bend. You could no, have had rapids or there whatever. Were, there were rapids. And even where there weren't rapids, there were big standing waves because although it was shallow, there was high meltwater. Um, there were trees everywhere, absolutely everywhere, and that was one of the biggest hazards is all of the log jams and all of the trees. Um, so the, the the few swims, the mishaps that we had were generally caused by trying to avoid a log jam and, and sort of turning too fast and the current taking you, or because the flow was high where where rivers came together, the confluences, there were, there were boils that were four or five inches high, there were really big eddy lines, and if you caught them badly, as you know, you'd just get tipped over, and that's where we had our swims. Um, so, so the river was not a high-graded river, but it was challenging enough. And actually, you don't want a challenging river because if something does go wrong, you're in a place where no one's coming to get you. So I, you have to be really, really cautious. Um, and it took us, you know, the first uh, 10 days, week and a half, to get to Aberdeen Gorge. And on the way, there's a couple of kind of grade three areas where we, we actually lined those areas because we just wanted to make sure we were the boat. Explain that, lined them? So um, essentially we got out of the canoes, we put ropes on the canoes and walked them down the side of the river because um, in Scotland you'd probably have run those sections but if something goes wrong you can actually get help really quickly or you, we didn't want to damage the boats because we really badly damaged the boats it would take a lot to repair them so we were really cautious in what we did. Um, and then you get to the area above Aberdeen Canyon, Aberdeen Gorge, and just above it there are some Class Three, Four rapids. So you know it's coming because the river character changes. You know, oh, take a breath. This looks different. I tell you what, we're going to go to the side of the river and start walking down the side of the river, and then the river narrows and it turns into a, a big gorge. The gorge has kind of walls that are two or three hundred feet high, um, and then we got there and it's. We know we've got to portage, we've got to take the boats out of the water, carry all equipment, all our food, and, and carry the boats around this section, which is... Why? Eight kilometres. Well, it's grade five, six in Aberdeen Canyon. and What does that mean? Well, grade five pretty much means unless you're a world master in canoeing, you're going to drown and die. Grade six then means that, you know what, you're just going to get turned into pulp if you go down there. Even the world master is going to get out and walk. Absolutely. So there's, there's no way that us mere mortals who are wanting to look after ourselves in the boats and not have any injuries are ever going to attempt that. Um, and so it's, to go around it is, is eight kilometres. So, And presumably there's not 
you know, there's not like a convenient towpath along the side of Absolutely it. Absolutely not. There's, 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 there's nothing. So you're in, you're in the start of a gorge. So the first part of it is to find a way out of the gorge to go along the river beside the river to drop back into the gorge at the far end. So we spent pretty much a day, once we, dropped the, once we got to the side and got out of the canoes, trying to find a way up out of the gorge before we could go alongside the river the, the, there was a, an old portage track, you know, the track people have used in the path, but past, sorry. But because it's been the third season without anybody going along it, mm-hmm. the, the, we, we struggled to find that old track. And when we did find it, it was already the willows and the alders grow so fast that the track was already um, disappearing. So we had to do quite a lot of cutting work to get our canoes along the track. Um, what, you got machetes, chainsaws? We've got, we've got, we've got handsaws. So as canoeists on a big river where there's lots of hazards, then we have, we have hand saws, you know, carry a saw in, in your buoyancy aid. So if you get trapped or one of your colleagues gets trapped, you can try and cut them out of, of nasty situations. We actually had a couple of saws because we lived off the land. There's so much timber. We didn't, we didn't use our stoves for more than three nights during the whole trip. So we, we, we cooked on, on wildfires every night, on, on sort of live fires. Um, so we did a lot of wood collection and cutting. So we had saws for that. So yeah, we, we knew it was going to be hard work, and we had to yeah, cut our own track through the forest. And you don't carry this all necessarily in one go because these are heavy laden canoes. Absolutely. So, and what what we it took us four days to do that eight kilometres. So we had to we took all of the kit out of the boats. We had our personal kit, we had our food, we had our kayaking kit, our safety kit, all in dry bags. So essentially we put that into dry bag loads and carried it backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards each day to get our loads up there. And then we had a, a, an epic day and a half. We can't carry the boats. The ground is really um, marshy. It's really wet and boggy. There are tussocks. You're tripping over the tussocks all the time. So we literally dragged the boats between the trees. Um, so physically it was a massive effort. And then when we got to the far end, which we go from high above the gorge to drop back down into the gorge we had to lower the boats by rope to get back down into the gorge so it was a huge effort and and one of the big challenges of the trip actually which which is in hindsight it's always fun um, the one thing I guess we've not mentioned yet are the mosquitoes. Yeah, I was going to mention those when you got to the swamp because I gather right, so I that, gather you, ha- you, you yeah that, that 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 came next that was the next come, on your list. That, but, but at this point the mosquitoes were. In, I mean, we have we have midges here, yeah. and actually midges are really quite friendly. Yeah, um, those mosquitoes. They reckon they're the national bird of Alaska, or the state bird should be the mosquito because, it, and I'm sure just across the border, it's much the same. Yeah, it would make complete sense to me. These 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 are not kind of flying insects that are going to bite you. These are aggressive, mean critters that, mm-hmm. that want to. We had bug shirts, really really good bug shirts, but they'd still find a way through and and go through bug shirts and t-shirts into your into your skin. Well, let's talk about the swamp. Go on, because is, is that the right order? Am I doing this in the right order? Where we? Where's so, the next um, bit? I'm just so trying to imagine this trip. From Aberdeen um, Canyon, you're then back into the main River Peel, and it was another five or six days down the River Peel with big tributaries coming into it to get to our halfway point, which was Fort McPherson. And um, so we've crossed the Arctic Circle by this point, so we've paddled north. Um, we've passed the area if anyone's done research on the area where the lost patrol was found that, that there's a, a really famous story of a, a, a mounty mounted police 
crew back in 1910 who got lost in the wilderness um, and unfortunately starved to death and you, you, you kind of paddle past the place they were found um, to Fort McPherson um, and then we resupplied, spent a few days there and um, that's when the group split from six to two so Dave and I went on um, the old boys of the team the two 50 year olds went on and then you head up the Rat River and it's up the Rat River where the kind of real swamps are right Right. Well, you, you alluded to this earlier. So tell me about the reason for six becoming two. So, I mean, I've done lots of expeditions and, and kind of worked with lots of groups of people. Um, and we did have some issues on this. And, and personality is always important. And if you don't know people very well, that's where challenges come. So so the, the fact that we changed the team at the last minute is is probably one of the main reasons why we had interpersonal issues on the trip. Um, hindsight's a great thing. Looking back on it, there were issues around our planning, around menus. We had a far too complex a menu and that caused various bits of conflict within the within the group. Um, Dave, Dave and I are both in our 50s. We're both in, live in Scotland. We have a very kind of Scottish outlook on the world. Um, the other four people were all much younger than us, so in their 30s and all from southern England, and, and kind of the, the, there were um, dichotomies in the way that we were running the trip and expectations, which we weren't expecting to happen. And, and in the end, to make it a pleasant trip for everyone, we decided that it was better to continue as two separate groups rather than try and make it work and stay together. And actually, by the time we get to Fort McPherson, we've done all of the, the dangerous rapids as part of the trip. I mean, there's lots of graft and lots of hard work, but actually the dangerous bits have been done. Um, so for the next half of the trip, although it's really physical and challenging, the actual technical parts of the trip are done. So certainly as a kind of trip leader, I felt it was a reasonable thing to split the group and they'd be be able to look after themselves in the, in, in the kind of the, the, the technical water aspects of things. And actually they've been on the water for three weeks. They've learned loads. <laughs> They're actually quite skillful. So, so here you are now. We, we, we've mentioned the Rat River a couple of times. Uh, and, and now you're... I, I hadn't really thought about this, though. Of course, if you're going over the Continental Divide, you have got to go uphill, which is fine when you're mountaineering. Not so easy in a boat. Boats don't aren't really made to go up uphill. So... Are you literally dragging it the whole way? Yeah, so the first, I mean, the way the only way I can describe it is for those people who've done a river like the Spey, you know, a, a lovely four-day trip on the, on the Spey, um, it's great, you, you paddle bits of it and you go with the rapids and the, the river does a lot of the hard work for you, actually. Um, but imagine starting at Spey Bay and ending in Newton Moor mm. and doing it in reverse. That's what we did. So absolutely, we spent a lot of time dragging and hauling, so just a rope on the canoe, pulling at the front and kind of jigging it at the back to try and get it between boulders. There were times where the flow was too high or the river narrowed so much that um, we, we couldn't actually get in the river to pull, so we had to take the canoe out and drag it alongside or carry it through the forest, which was really challenging. Um, and there were bits of it where the, the river was incredibly narrow with steep banks, and they were the really mosquito-infested, boggy, swampy bits, um, full of beaver. So it was really exciting for spotting wildlife. You know, there were beaver everywhere, and you'd, you'd camp at the side of the river, and the beavers would be floating around all night, splashing their tails, going, what are you doing here? You're very strange, splashing it. So you'd be kept awake at night by, by beavers <laughs> doing tail splashing. Amazing things. But Any uh, bear encounters? We, we saw we, we saw one grizzly bear. Fortunately, it was on the other side of the river, and it was going a different way. So that was... Um, good um we did see grizzly bear but 
you're probably making so much noise when you're on land, crashing yeah. through trees with a and these, blooming these, big... These, these bears aren't used to seeing human beings, no. so they'd avoid us if they saw us, because it'd bet. be strange. Um, we'd, we'd go to bed at night on these gravel banks by the side of the river. We'd wake up in the morning and look at the footprints, and so wolf footprints in the morning outside the tent, so they'd pass through our campsite overnight. At some points, we saw wolf footprints. There were bear footprints on the bars, where shingle bars we were landing on. Are you hanging food? Um, we are not hanging food, but we have barrels. Okay, so we'd, we'd, like bear barrels. We'd, yeah, we, we'd cook and eat, um, you know, 30 to 40 meters from where we were camping so yeah. and put the food in the barrels overnight. So we'd always tried to kind of camp and eat in slightly different places to, to manage that. But again, the bears aren't um, used to people, so it's not like you're in... Um, Yosemite, where the bears yeah. are stealing from cars because they know they're habituated to the food that humans have. These bears do that. Um, but one of the most amazing encounters we had was at, at one point um, a, a wolf was we spotted a young wolf by the side of the the river, and essentially it followed us for two kilometres down the side of the river, watching us. And it was literally you know a hundred feet from us. That was absolutely phenomenal. Real white fang stuff. Absolutely, yeah. So that, that, that sort of um, yeah, London stories are just just great. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, if you haven't come across them, we're talking about Jack London, Call of the Wild. Have a look at those books. The books are brilliant. They're in Alaska, but it's it's just it's just a man's divide that say, separates Alaska from Yukon. It's yeah. nothing nothing real. I think the way we think of wolves now compared to the way that they described wolves back in the kind of 19th century is very different. You know, mm. the, the, but it's really interesting to read it that way. You know, it's a, it's a very different appreciation of the wildlife. Um, yeah. so, so, so we get to the Rat River, um, we're going upstream, 140 kilometers, it's quite diverse, um, but these um, boggy swampy areas where the river narrows are also very flood prone. So the other issue is if it rains upstream and you don't necessarily know it's raining upstream, the areas where we're in are gonna flood. Oh, right. And so where you camp at night, you try and get as high above the riverbanks as you can, but sometimes that's not always possible because there's lots of forest there. The mosquitoes mm -hmm. are hemming you into the watercourse. So every every night we'd kind of pile um, a little cairn by the side of the river so that we could try and monitor the water levels. And, you know, there's some mornings we woke up in the morning and the river had gone up, you know, eight to ten inches in two or three hours. And you'd be like, mm, maybe I'll just set my alarm every couple of hours and just yeah. have a look out at the tent to see what's happening with the flow. And certainly for the first part of the trip, we had not quite, but you know, near enough 24-hour daylights because we, we, we set off at the beginning of July. Um, as we got towards the end of the trip, then we were having proper night. Um, so it was six weeks later, but because the, the season changes so rapidly up that far north. Um, but yeah, the, the, those kind of flash floods were something we had to be really aware of as well. As well as the light, are you aware of the seasons changing? Are you seeing things that say, oh, is summer ending at this point or, or by, not by, quite? By the, by it's fall the, coming in. Yeah, by the end of the trip, we'd started, the nights were definitely getting colder. So um, amazing things. In July, there was a heat wave where it was over 30 degrees on the Arctic Circle when we were there. So, you know, we, we, we talk about climate change, but climate change has happened there. It's not happening. Um, we experienced a forest fire that was... Uh, was climate related there was mega slumps where the permafrost is melting and essentially the mountain sides are just dropping off falling into the rivers yeah. the things but because it's so far north and so so depopulated it's not in the news yeah. but but actually global warming has happened there it's not happening um and so there's lots of things that are changing 
which we just don't see and don't appreciate. So in terms of their seasons, their seasons are changing. We talked to the First Nations people, the, the caribou migration routes have changed because of the, the way the seasons have changed and the temperatures because the plants are starting to change and where they are. So towards the end of the trip, we'd start to start to see, you know, brown leaves on trees. The deciduous trees were starting to change. Nights were longer, getting our first frosts. And that's within six or seven weeks mm. from midsummer to the start probably here that would be the end of October from kind of June to October happened in six or seven weeks there mm. what was the kind of like feeling towards the end when you got to and this was all all done uh, was it just was it elation or was it kind of like oh well that's over and that was great and I'm ashamed it's finished really it's a it's a long trip. It's hard work. You want to get home. Yeah, <laughs> you probably um, want to shower <laughs> and uh, shower, shave, d different food. Yeah. So 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 actually, it, it was enough. We did virtually a thousand miles in an open boat. Uh, so that 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 was enough. Uh, I mean, I'm, I've been back for two months, and and actually, I'd go back tomorrow. So mm. it's, it's it, it was an amazing adventure, but I'd do it again. How about the other team? How did they get on? So they finished the route as well. Um, they actually ended up being slightly ahead of us, um, which was which was absolutely fine. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a race um, because it's all about the journey and you know what what you experience on the way. And so um, they they had the trip that they wanted, which was great. And what do you do with canoes at the end? Have you still got a whole bunch of canoes over there? Yeah, so we had we had we had, we had very very few options. Um, they were out. It wasn't like we'd hired them and we had to get back to the the the, the outfitters. Um, so we tried to sell them. And, um, of course, where you end up, the people know you're leaving and they know that, you yeah. you know, oh, they'll be off in three or four days. Like, they want to sell us their canoe today and they're asking for $1,000. Yeah. If we wait till Thursday when their flight is, we'll probably get it for $100. Or free. Yeah, so, uh, so, so yeah, the, selling the boats at the end, actually, we'd hoped to recoup some of the cost of the expedition. Didn't really happen. Yeah. Um, didn't really happen. So we, we ended up kind of, um, yeah, had to give our canoe away essentially at the end you know this is a trip i should really this is a question that rather i should really ask you in in a few years time because it, it the question is how do you think something like that changes you and i don't think you probably know yet uh, it's one of the things that actually embeds its way in you but have you got any indications yet have you do you think it's twi changed your perspective on anything maybe picking your expedition partners <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i, I think um I've done quite a lot of long, big expeditions before, um, and what, for me, they, I'd, I'd call them life-affirming trips. Mm. You know, you do these amazing trips, and you, you come back, you go, "Yep, I'm." You know, it, it's something that makes me feel passionate, and I'd like to do it something again. So, it's so a life-affirming. It, it sort of it gives gives me a place on the planet. I, I feel like I've done something for me. I mean, I do a lot of work for other people, but it's quite occasionally nice to do something for yourself. This this trip in particular, I think. I hadn't expected to have as many um, First Nations interactions as we did have, talking to the elders and how their life has changed so quickly in that couple of generations and how now that a lot of that's been driven by, by climate change. Mm. That, that's, that's not going to be reversed. Their whole culture is changing. Um, they can't hunt the caribou because where they live now, the settlements are all in different places where the caribou are. Um, the salmon... So Old Crow, where we finished, which is um, on the tributary to the Yukon catchment, you know, historically they'd catch salmon every summer. They'd dry it and they'd eat it throughout the rest of the year. Um, 
the government has asked them to stop catching wild salmon because the populations are so low. They had caught 30 salmon, 30 in a season where years ago they'd be catching tens of thousands. Um, it's got so bad that the government's asked them to stop catching wild salmon and they are giving the First Nations people tinned salmon as a replacement and that tinned salmon is farmed salmon. Uh, you know, their whole lifestyle has, has changed. You know, the whole way of life is changing. And part of that's modern culture and young people with kind of different mm. different aspirations and everyone's walking around with a phone in their pocket. You know, yeah. the, 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 I mean, the world that's has changed a, anyway. That's a, that's a little bit like the difference between you two and the others in your expedition, really, that the, that that sort of generational, generational cultural, cultural yeah. absolutely and i think i think that's that's essentially what 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 um the the split in the trip was all about in the end it was a generational difference mm. and a cultural difference uh, anything you've brought back to your work here in scotland and your businesses here i mean your your highland experiences i, th I think uh certainly for for my kayaking business I, it's not really brought much to that but i, I do work with a local development trust and uh, when I was out over in Old Crow, we were we were talking to people who ran the development trust um, in the First Nations village, and they were they were talking about with COVID how difficult it was to build new houses. And you know we live in the west coast of Scotland, and actually housing is a is a huge issue for us, and it's really expensive to build. They were they, they were they were paying four hundred and fifty dollars for a sheet of marine ply. Um, it cost them. 10 million Canadian dollars to build four houses during COVID. And that's partly because they're so remote, everything has to be flown in um, to, to build new houses in their community. But we think we have a lot of problems and you know, with the development trust here that I work with, you know, we, we have quite a lot of challenges to, to make a difference, but out there it's so much harder. But you go back. Oh, yeah, I'd love to go back, and actually I'd love to go back and chat to the people we'd met and, and take other people with us to, to explore that, that environment. You know, it's a, it's a pristine environment, it's wonderful. Um, it's it's, it's, it's life-changing. Life-changing, that's true of so many great adventures, even if you don't know it at the time. My thanks to Corey, and my second podcast with him, all about first aid, will come soon. If you've enjoyed this, you might consider buying me a virtual coffee. It's a couple of quid and goes towards the cost of hosting these podcasts on a server. There's a link in the show notes and at alwaysanotheradventure.com where you'll also find links to the videos. I'm Simon Willis. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>